Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Our History. My name is Tony DeVolvo. He was but a teenage kid from Layla when he completed his senior debut for Carlton in mid-1992. And it's fair to assume his 11-letter surname posed some early concerns for members of the football riding fraternity. But in the pantheon of league football, he'll be universally remembered as a game-changer, forging his handsome reputation as the prototype player of the 21st century from the moment he completed the famous one-handed pickup. For 16 seasons, his nickname reverberated through the grandstands as supporters marvelled at his rare athletic feats. We saw him make his mark on the all-conquering 1995 grand final campaign. We saw him tear Essendon's heart out in the 99 preliminary final and we saw him haul in 18 marks to thwart West Coast in that famous contest at the old Carlton ground. To go with the Premiership trophy was the Carlton captaincy, two club best and fairests, a Lee Matthews trophy for the AFLPA's most valuable player and All-Australian selection. Admittedly, it wasn't always a fairy tale. Chronic injuries restricted his game, personal tragedy left him reeling, and in the end he was left to lead Carlton through some of its bleakest days. But the sun is out and blue skies again prevail over Vizzy Park, as today we welcome our very special guest, Anthony Kudafudis. Great to see you, Kuda. Same to you, Beast. Good to be here. Kuda, there's a lot to plough through, uh, but I want to start in mentioning the old Carlton Grand by talking to you about that defining moment in May 2005, when you handed the ball to John Nichols to signal the end of an era at Princess Park. Mm. What are your recollections of that moment? It's a very emotional day, Tony, because I'd spent a lot of my life here at this football club, you know, when I walked in at the age of 14. So a lot of really good memories. And my favourite ground out of everywhere that I've played, you can imagine when you train here, it is your home home ground. So it was really a sad day. I remember a lot of the past plays coming along before the game and watching us warm up, and we warmed up outside number one oval. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a great day for us. And then, of course, the siren went and we'd, we'd lost to Melbourne Football Club. But for me to have the honour to be captain of that day for the last time here in this wonderful oval and to uh, pick up the ball and say goodbye to all the fans. And there was tears everywhere, Tony. And I must admit, I'll be honest with you, before the game I had a few tears myself, emotional, because I was getting towards the end of my career and I just thought back of everything that I'd done in the past and spending time with, you know, stretching with hands upstairs and looking at the crowd outside as they're walking in into the game. Just a lot of wonderful memories. So it was really hard for me to accept in some ways to say goodbye, but I had the honour and privilege to pick up that ball and hand it over to... Well, probably the all-time great, I guess a lot of people consider him as, John, John Nicholl. So, a very emotional day. We spoke about the, um, the reverberation of the, of the nickname Cooter, Cooter around the grandstands at Princess Park. I, I mean, as a supporter, and a lot of people that are listening on with supporters of Carlton then can vouch for, for, for that and what a great time it was to be part of the club. Do you remember hearing the noise, you know, echoing around the stadiums? And, and how did that make you feel? Did it actually inspire you to, you know, to actually lift when you played games here? Oh, 100% it did, Beast. When you hear the crowd chanting out kuda kuda, in particular when you're playing good footy, it did help me lift. And I was pretty privileged in that way that the support, supporters really embraced me over the years. I know it maybe not so much at the beginning, but once I got my football going, the support I had from supporters was incredible. And I met a lot of great people because of that. But I was really honoured because, when, you know, as a young kid, Beast, you always dream of just... I had a dream to play one AFL game. But if someone had told me before I started that, that you're going to have the crowd chanting out Cuda, I, I would have taken that any day. So the first time someone recognised me as Cuda, 
was strange. I thought, oh, wow, how good is this? But can you imagine the entire crowd chanting out Kuda Kuda? was special for me. So I was very lucky because, uh, to me, this is uh, the greatest club of all time. And I'm so forever grateful that, you know, 14, I got the letter and I lived in the Colton zone, although I begged for another team. And I was a little bit disappointed when I first got it. To me, I could not have imagined to have played at any other club than the Colton Football Club. Now, um, Anthony, we want to talk about your heritage, which actually spans four cultures. I, I think I'm right in saying. Now, Jim, your father was born in Egypt to Greek Cypriot parents. Yep. Your mother, Anna, came from northern Italy. Yes. Um, it was quite a, an, an amazing uh, uh, mix, yeah. really. They met in Melbourne, I take it. Yeah, they did. Your mother lost her parents at the age of, both by the age of 22, and my father, well, they basically got evicted out of Egypt and just had his father. But he came to Australia on his own. My mum came to Australia on their own. Somehow they met. Don't know how they communicated, Beast, but um, they did. And yeah, and after that, it was pretty much a fairy tale. And my mum had plans of going back to Italy, so it was only really a holiday stay, but met my father, fortunately for me, had no idea about the game of football, no idea. So the first time we got, we went home, as in my brother Paul and I, and said to them we uh, want to play football, they were totally against it because they thought of it as a rough and tough game. And uh, we said we really want to play. So I'm glad because then from the second year onwards, my parents didn't miss not one single game that, that I played and followed me and my brother everywhere. And without their support, I could not have made it. You know, even my brother's support was enormous for me. So I was very lucky. And the the game of Australian rules football opened up my parents' eyes too to the way the Australian culture was as well. So not only did we have the Greek and Italian culture, we embraced the Australian way of living too. And I think that was important for them. And now my mum's still a fanatical fan of footy. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, a wonderful game. And yeah, Can you talk a little bit about the, the sporting pedigree? Was your father a, an athlete? So he tells me. <laughs> as far as I know, he was a very good basketballer in Egypt, and his friends would say that too. How good, I don't know, because I never see my father too fit. Although he was a very skinny guy, he never really exercised or did anything. And my mum, you know, she, there was nine kids in the family, so apparently a few were good at soccer. So I, I don't know. So you yourself, uh, you know, w- were a tremendous decathlete. You know, mm. junior athlete. You, you, you know, you progressed quite well at state level. What was the uh, defining moment where you decided it was going to be football over athletics? It was a tough one, Beast, because I really loved athletics too. So I had the passion for both sports. And uh, I was a strange champion high jumper there for a little while until Tim Forsyth took out, um, beat me in the last uh, nationals. And then I had the Australian record in 110-metre hurdles uh, uh, also just before I chose football. And I won maybe four or five multi-events, which is like decathlon and state championships. So I had a very successful junior ath- athletics career. But it was Carlton who then offered me a contract. And uh, I think it was Jeff Walsh and Chris Heverin who were the two uh, recruiters from Carlton who were trying to convince me to give away athletics. But I stuck with it as long as I could until really the, the club offered me a three-year deal. And I sat in there with my parents. And uh, there wasn't too much communication going on, Beast, because my parents couldn't speak too much English. But I decided to sign that contract and from then onwards I was a full-time footballer and it was the best decision I ever made, as tough as it was and people often ask me and say, you know, do you ever imagine yourself being, you know, representing Australia at the Olympics and I watched some of the athletes that I competed against compete, you know, but it's a tough sport athletic so luckily the club offered me that contract because if they didn't, who knows what I would have done but at the end of it it was an easy decision because... When you talk about sport, you talk about team and some friendships, and 
I think that's what sort of got me over the line. And, and the the financial component to it was yeah. obviously pretty important. You were living in in Layla, you know, yep. t- you know, potentially uh, tough times mm. for the family. Mm. Um, you know, did that have a fairly big bearing on your decision ultimately to sign? Hundred percent. Tony, I mean, it was tough for my parents, you know, trying to pay a mortgage and, you know, just labouring away. And there wasn't never enough money. I felt like, it's funny, because because you have love, you feel like you had everything in life anyway. And although I couldn't have some of the little things that I wanted, uh, I still didn't feel like I missed out on anything, you know. I had to share a bicycle with my brother and we just didn't have the luxuries of some other people. But I think that I was brought up the right way for that reason so yeah look it was only $7,800 when I first signed at the Carlton Football Club for the first three years that was my base payment so it wasn't a lot of money but it was enough you know maybe to cover petrol money anyway back then cause you had the v- V6 of course coming from Thomas and you had the, the, the hotted up car so yeah look no doubt financially athletics to get even a $150 grant you had to write out an essay imagine me beast trying to write out an essay eh? no hope whatsoever so footy was a little bit easy in that way for me so, so that was a defining moment, clearly, and um, you came to Carlton. I, I suspect you followed your brother Paul. He was already here with the thirds, playing yeah. under 19s. Yeah. Um, what were your first impressions of the place? When did you come down? I, I came in uh, when I was under when I was 14, B. So I played two years in the under 15s in just their scholarship squads. Okay, so it was that once a week that we tried out for 10 weeks, and then we played a week carnival. After that, then I watched my brother. I think we came at the same sort of time, but Paul had a really good under-19s um, career, you know, for the two years that he played, very tough and hard. My brother Paul, not as skillful. Unfortunately, being born on December the 20th, he, you know, he missed out on playing another year under-19s by 10 days, if that makes sense. So, well, 13 months apart, but I had two more years in the under-19s and what he did, it may have affected him a little bit too, but my first impressions was I was scared and nervous. Can you, I was only a skinny kid turning up and I, was, I seen some men. So, you know, it was pretty scary times and Ross Henshaw was our coach and he was well, real, real tough. So we knew when we came to training it was going to be on, you know. It was a good two, two, two and a half hours of training session. It wasn't easy for a young kid who came from Layla who enjoyed being there with his mates. And, you know, of course, training and being, you know, when you're talented, you can just not train as hard and then go and have a nice of luck at the fish and chip shop. That was more <laughs> like life. So it was a, a real commitment to come down, Tony, and it took me a little while. And, of course, the club always provided taxis and I always found some sort of excuse to get out of training. Can you believe that, please? Hard to believe. <laughs> it is hard to believe. Yeah. You were thrown, I think, the Guernsey number 46 initially yeah. and then you reverted to 43. Mm. Was the 43 Guernsey just thrown to you? Did yeah. you ask for it? And why did you stick with it? Yeah, no, no, it was given to me. So 46 initially and 43. And as soon as I got it, I thought, wow, my mum was born in 1943. I love this number. And I kept it ever since, Tony. So I think I might have been asked a couple of years later if I wanted to go to a lower number. No way. I love the 43. And uh, yeah, it represented a lot to me. But it's one of those numbers that really stand out too. Four and three. I don't know what it is. If it's wider or bigger, I, I don't know. But... So, yeah, as soon as I knew my mum was born in 1943, there was a significance behind it. So I kept it, yeah, for that reason. And you broke through to senior level in the 13th round of 1992 against mm. Adelaide. You were still a teenager. You were 19. Yeah. What do you remember of the first game? Well, I know in 1991 I was on the list, Tony, and I couldn't get a game. So I struggled that year. And that pre-season I said, right, I've just got to train a little bit harder. And I put on about eight or nine kilos. So I was playing full back in the reserves, 
in a position that I was very unfamiliar with. And uh, imagine me trying to take over the full back of the century, Stephen Silvani spot in the senior team. There was no hope. But I won a best and fairest two from the reserves of that year playing a full back. So my first game, I remember I was emergency quite a few times and couldn't quite get a game. And then they finally said, you're going to be playing senior footy. I was so nervous. I had a million and one phone calls come through, all your long lost cousins as they do, ring you up at home and ask for tickets and... <laughs> That's when the ticket drama started at the Carlton Football Club. I think, don't worry about the contracts. It was more about how many tickets I gave away uh, to all my uh, so-called relatives. But I was extremely nervous. And uh, although I was looking forward to the game, I was still like thinking, well, is this going to happen? Is the time going to come? And I, eventually the time has to come and I have to run out there as a senior player. So well, I was thrilled, though, I must say. you know, At the end of that game, after I played, I was thrilled to have represented, represented this club. Now, fast forward a little bit to round 23 against Collingwood VFL Park, mm. and I alluded earlier in the introduction to, you know, that moment where you you swooped on the ball and picked it up one-handed. Where did that come from? I, I, I'm just reading some notes here, and according to uh, notes I've gleaned, David Park and later said to you, I've been waiting 20 years to see what you just did. Mm. Where did that come from? Had you done that at home, picked mm. up the ball with one hand? Where did you, where'd you pluck that from? Well, we, uh, my brother and I did it from a young age. And Paul, my brother Paul in grade six, got a card from his teacher to say Takuda, the only kid to pick up the football with one hand. So he was the the, the original. I just took it, <laughs> copyrighted and said, mate, it's mine now. But we always played footy that way, Tony. I don't know. We never had the full-size football at home. We could never afford it. We had the smaller one. And whether it was that reason that we didn't, we always played the game of footy with one hand. So when the time came, and I did it a few times in the reserves, and to me it was just a natural thing. I didn't even know when I was doing it. So that game, senior level, I remember, it was, I think it was Jamie Turner I was up against and sort of just pushed him aside and grabbed the ball one hand, and I kicked it down to John Doridge. And, uh, yeah, I, people from that day onwards spoke about it all the time, picking up the ball with one hand. So to me what was quite a normal thing to the other people was really unusual to the supporters. And my brother Paul did it once in the under-19s at training, and Ross Henshaw called everyone in and said, if I see that again, Cooter, you won't be here. So he didn't accept the one-handed pick-up in the under-19s. And then after I did it that game, I had a massive night out uh, beast with some friends. Didn't drink too much, but I was all okay the next day. And then David Parkin came up to me the next day at training. And, yeah, he said that to me. I waited 20 years. I thought he was going to say, Cooter, you're being dropped again. So <laughs> see you later. But he was very, very nice to me. And we saw at the weekend um, Michael Jamison unleashing the 70-metre torpedo punch from, you know, the kickoff. And obviously he's been given some licence by the senior coach to do that. Does it, you know, um, make you happy that players are still given the opportunity to show flair and finesse in a game of footy? I think so. I mean, you, you, you run it at your own risk. But if you're proven that you can do it, I think there's always, it's a good reason to just let them go. You know, I can't imagine of not not have played my my game the way I did if David Parkin said, you know, don't do that and don't pick it up with one hand and all that. It would have just changed the dynamics of my game. But he was able to just let me run and have a little... You've got to give players a little bit of freedom if they've got that ability to be able to do those things. Now, um, I tend not to dwell on the disappointments, but I think it was in 93 that you really um, incurred the first of injuries. Um, it was an ankle injury that put you out for a, quite a while towards the end of the 93 season. And if memory serves, you had to sit out grand final day 93. You weren't there for the for that game? 
Yeah, I, I was emergency. No, no, I was still playing, Tony. I think I played the first five games and played really well at the start of the season before I injured my foot. So I think it was something underneath my foot. I don't to this day. I still don't even know what it was, but I literally couldn't run on it, and I needed about six weeks off. I think I missed about six weeks and then came back and just wasn't fit enough. And um, although I think I played maybe three more games that year, I didn't play well at all. But come before the end of the final series, I started to play really good footy again. And I think I was in the in the best plays in the reserves for two or three of the weeks beforehand and thought I might have may have had a shot to play senior footy, but it wasn't to be. So I remember sitting here on the Thursday night thinking, I think I've got a chance, I think I've got a chance, but they didn't pick me. Do you, you actually felt within yourself that you were, would have been ready to go in that game? 100%. And have I you, thought, yeah. Have you conversed with the coach? Well, I'm just trying since? to find out who didn't pick me because Cole Kinnear said that he put his hand up for me and David Parkin said he put his hand up. <laughs> Serge Silvani did, Mark McClure. So they all claimed that they did, you know, have their... So obviously it wasn't someone... There's a few of them lying to me. But I really did think that I had a chance, Tony, because I, I played some pretty good footy in the reserves to prove that I could play the game. But I had to watch from the sidelines. So I was a disappointed young kid. I was. I don't know whether it's the appropriate time, but I'll throw it in anyway. Do you have regrets from your career? Is that one of them, that you didn't get to play in that game? Are there many regrets all that? I don't know about regrets, but I was disappointed that I didn't play. I mean, if they had have won the grand final, it would have been a massive regret, you know, for sure. But they they lost that game. So, you know, upset as I was, it was another inspiration for me to get, to really push myself to have a goal to one day, you know, be part of a premiership team. So it was close to my 21st birthday. And I remember Ange playing in the 93 grand final and I watched from the sidelines and I wanted to be part of it like him. So after that, I had a dream to play, you know, in a premiership team, which I, I was able to a couple of years later. Now, 94, of course, was a disappointment also, a great disappointment. You know, it was a disastrous final series, ended with that, um, that upset loss to Geelong mm. and Waverley. Um, were you starting to ask questions? Will, you know, will we ever make yeah. it? How was the self-doubt at that stage? It was high. Yeah, no doubt about it because I thought we had a list and a team that was uh, should have been you know, there right to the end. And 94 was really disappointing because I think it was round 20 at Princess Park where we thrashed West Coast Eagles. The next week we thrashed Richmond and then we lost to our old arch enemy uh, Essendon in the last round when we um, wrestled Greg Williams. And then from there we played against Melbourne who was seventh on the ladder and we were second. And they were able to come from behind in the second half for that game and beat us and then we had Geelong who missing a few of their superstar players so I think we initially thought that we'd just be able to walk in and, and beat them and then off we go to a prelim final and it wasn't the case so yes there was a lot of self-doubt Tony. Did that translate into a particularly hard pre-season yeah. of 94-95? Yeah I think so I think that's when we really had that belief to say you know what we're running out of time and we really got to train hard and we had a wonderful pre-season Peter Shockman was incredible he's such a great guy and a good fitness trainer, and Parker got us all, you know, together as one, you know, unity. And I think Anthony Stewart, who was a sports psychologist, came in at that time too. I'd worked with him in '94. He was a major influence in my career too, and I think he had a major impact on all the players too that year. And uh, he realised that we had a lot of really good leaders at the club. And Stephen Kernan was our number one leader, but he was surrounded by incredible leaders too. And I think once they you know, united and we all had that one vision to get there and win a grand final, and it was a, it was a big effort all year long when you've only lost two games throughout the entire season to, to continue that spirit. 
and uh, we were able to do that, Tony. 95, you know, went to plan accordingly. Uh, it went like clockwork, actually. Yeah. But, and, of course, it was a magnificent final series. I, I remember you going forward against Brisbane, that pretty mm. tough uh, final, and turning the game, you know, when it was there to be won. I mean, that must have given you an enormous amount of self-confidence going into the the, the, the further finals. That was the game, Beast, when all those self-doubts, if we had have lost that, we were gone. So that was the biggest challenge for us. And Brisbane Bears, as they were known back then, had a phenomenal second half to the season. And I had Chris Scott tagging me all day that day, and he'd done a really good job on me. And then Parko at three-quarter time said, you're going to go to play full forward. And so then I was able to kick the first three goals and ignite the team. And then Sticks, I think, kicked the next one. And we only won by about 19 points at the end. So it wasn't a, a great win. But the, we then had the week off and then it was history after that when we took on North Melbourne in the prelim final. So that was the biggest test for us mentally, Beast, because of what happened in 94 going out in straight sets. And, you know, we're, uh, people were still questioning us to say we're old and slow and come finals they'll probably break down anyway. So... We did the job on that day, yeah. Refreshment memory, Cooter, 95 prelim. Did yes. you have a good game? Yeah, I had to uh, help out Justin Madden. So not only was I getting tagged on the wing, I had to pick up Corey McKernan around the ground too. So almost played on two plays that day to help out Justin because Corey was in really good form and quite an athletic person. So my role was not only to play on the wing but to re- you know watch and be aware of Corey McKernan around the ground. So... <laughs> I can, a reasonable game. I can remember you playing, you know, football at half back. You played, you know, on ball. You went forward. In your own heart of hearts, where do you think your best football was played? And what what did you believe was your best position playing Midf- league footy? Midfield, to me, was by far my favourite position. And I think I had the most influence on the game in the midfield. Uh, I struggled for a long time when they put me on the wing in 94. I never looked back. And then I was hoping to get into right into the midfield because it makes a big difference three or four possessions a week extra from the, you know playing ruck rover is a big difference and impact in your in your career and stats too you know so eventually i got to play you know more in as a ruck rover later on in my career but i had a really good stint after a struggle at center half back two beast when i nailed down center half back and understood it and learned you know how to play center half back the game was very very easy for me and then i then had the transition into the midfield 95 grand final, the big day. Did you have a good week? Did you sleep well? Were you a nervous sort of person leading into games of that magnitude? How did you prepare? Real nervous. Yeah, I was used to the bigger occasion because as an athlete, you know, nationals and all that build up and, you know, played a few finals, games of footy. So a little bit of all that came into play for this grand final week. But this was different because it's the biggest occasion that I've ever experienced in my life as a young kid too. And the, the build-up, and you know, the supporters at the ground. It used to take Andrew and I an hour to walk in, you know, to sign autographs. There was that many. There was such a buzz around this wonderful place. And uh, I was extremely nervous, probably over-the-top nervous beast. And uh, I remember walking into the MCG and when you're over-the-top nervous, you're zapped of energy a little. But it was Ange, who was always a character and a clown. So Ange would go out the night before and I'd be home, you know, visualising the game and make sure that I was right. But that's the way Ange prepared compared to me, just completely opposite. So when he said to me before the game, just eat, relax, you know, ease up or whatever, it just sort of made me laugh a bit and that tension, that nervous tension went away. Were, were you started. superstitious? Did you wear yeah. the same pair of jocks or what did Over you do? Over the top beast. If I had a good game, it was the same socks the way I put on the socks and the boots and the shoelaces and the underwear. It was all, it was all that. It was, I was over the top. And 
the grand final itself, I mean, there are many people there, current supporters that so, look so fondly on that game and would say, oh, it was all over in 10 minutes. Yeah. When did you actually think the game was run and won? Oh, look, halfway through the last quarter, up by 80 points, as silly as it sounds, and it does sound silly, I knew then. But at halftime, we had a convincing lead, but I still wasn't convinced that we could, you know, win, that, you know, that we were over the line. I mean, I had a feeling that we were going to win, but it still wasn't enough to go, ah, this is going to be, you know, all over. So halfway through, you know, I finally realised, Beast, when I stood there at the MCG and I looked around and went, wow, look at the crowd, you know, 90-odd thousand people. I couldn't believe it. I, it was like, as a young kid, you think it's surreal that these guys actually play in a grand final. And there I was on that day actually doing the same thing. So I remember when the siren went, I was, uh, you know, I think in another, on another planet at that stage. It was incredible, the feeling. And when you do it once, you, you want to feel it again, but unfortunately it wasn't the case with me. So You weren't to know it then, obviously. But yeah. do you remember, you know, doing the lap and yeah. who you saw and, and what you did when you were, you know, Sucking it in, as they say. Yeah, I remember seeing Mill when the siren went, you know, hugging him. But I, you know, I was searching for Ange really because him and I went been through so much and being close mates. So I, I got to Ange and you know Glenn Manton as well, and we celebrated. I remember running around and someone pointed out my it was Ange. I think pointed out my brothers. So I went there and gave them a big hug, Paul and Christian and all that. So I do remember little little bits of memories, Beast. I mean, it was a long time now. When you think about 18 years ago almost, so not hard, it's not easy to remember everything, but there's little things that you remember forever. I remember seeing my father come into the change rooms at the end of the you know, game and give me a kiss. And, you know, he wasn't that sort of guy, but he was so, you know, happy. And I remember seeing my parents outside the bus too as we were about to leave to come back to Optus Oval. So those memories, for whatever reason, stay with me. Is there an untold story, putting you on the spot now, but is there an untold story from that game, either the game itself before the game or the aftermath of that game that you can relate? Is there, is there a, a, a little-known story that you can perhaps tell us? Oh, all I know is the celebrations afterwards, Tony. I mean, you know, we were kings of the city and we went out every <laughs> night and I, uh, there, was a, there was a footy trip that the guys that couldn't go on the footy trip went to the Gold Coast and all the other guys went to America and Andrew and I booked on both. So <laughs> I remember drinking and eating five weeks straight and I came home from 95, I went to 103 kilos. <laughs> B, so I made the most of it, I tell you right now. But yeah, we were the kings of the city. We really were because it's a religion here in Melbourne and that's what it was like for us. Can you imagine I was 22 and Andrew was 23, what it was like, you know, the pinnacle really of uh, you know being a young kid and you're just known by people so people are like oh wow there they are the, you know the two the two young guns so yeah great memories and, and the fact i mean you said you know you you wouldn't get there again to the ultimate to you know you 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 made the game but to get to the top of the summit you never quite got there again mm. you know in retrospect did you come to realize how hard grand oh. finals actually are to win yeah i think we came a little bit spoiled here Tony, because 15 premierships before that, a lot throughout the 70s and 80s, and then we won it in 95, so we just expected it to happen again. It was built in within us, you know, set by John Elliott, the culture of this football club, was to only accept winning premierships. So I did think that we are going to do it again. 97, you know, wasn't a great year for us, and 98, we fell away early, and then we came back so strong, and then there we were in 99, you know, playing off in a grand final again. And we can't forget in year 2000, people probably forget that we won 13 games in a row. And then we just lost to the Bulldogs out here and then the injuries started. And then in 90, you know, 2001, we were really you know, a little bit more inconsistent than what we were in 2000. And then well, that was it. That was gone after that. So 13, 
finals game, I'm a bit of a superstitious man, so I wanted to get off that number of 13 because that's when I had, you know, did my knee and had the knee reconstruction as that superstition. So it wasn't the case. And every end of season, Tony, that I dreamt that maybe next year was the time that we we're just going to play one finals game, but it never eventuated. Now, um, you lost your father, I think it was in uh, 1998. Yes. Um, a t- t- tough year for you. I know he, he was fairly badly ill over the pre-season period mm. going into that season. Mm. You had to spend a lot of time with him and you were there with him to the end. That, that must have been a, a tremendously draining experience. Still to this day, my, the toughest period of my life, no doubt about it, because uh, I was still living at home and I was really close with my father and... As a young kid, I always thought he'd be around forever, really. And I just turned... I was still 24 when he got diagnosed, but he was really in severe trouble. And we sort of knew, but we were in denial too at the same time, thinking maybe we can help him. And then I just turned 25, and uh, he, you know, he went downward so, so quick. So he only really lived for three months after being diagnosed, and I tried to spend as much time as I could with him. And I remember, you know, driving home from training. My, my only getaway was to get to training and try to have a bit of a laugh. But as soon as, you know, you get home, it was just silence in the house. And it was miserable times, you know. And then the day came where, he, you know, he passed away. And it was hard for me to accept as a young kid, Tony, going through everything. Being, you know, a footballer and all this pressure on playing. And, you know, you've got to be the best player. And if you don't play well, they're blaming you for the reason why they're not winning. It was a really tough period of my life and I lost my way for a long time there until I finally, because of the support that I had not only from my mum and brothers and my, you know, my girlfriend then, Barry Mitchell and Wayne Britton. I always say them two in football sense were incredible for me. And David Parkin was really good too in the sense that, you know, the understanding of the father and him passing away. But Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell were the two guys that really put a lot of effort and taught me so much more about the game. And then I had to turn it around. Just speaking of your father, you're obviously particularly close to him, but I'd imagine that particular phase must have brought you even more close together. Mm. Was there a lot said in those last few months between you and he? You know, did you find out a little bit more about him, perhaps something you didn't know about him before? Yeah, I tried to. I spent every minute to him. You know, I had the opportunity to say, I love you, and, you know, I'll look after mum, you know, all the, all those sort of things, which was... Uh, you know, very difficult for me. Um, but yeah, look, I, I, I tried to get as much as I could out of him, but I realised then how important health was because, you know, as he, he was deteriorating and I went to play practice matches and all that, it was the only time in, in my career that he never wished me luck. So I'd turn around and say, Dad, why aren't you wishing me good luck? And he had a bit of a smile and said, good luck. But he was that ill, he didn't even, you know, have that in him to even say good luck because he was, you know, really deteriorating quickly. So I just try to spend as much time as I could with him and, you know, the memories and all that and try to bring up the memories and, the, you know, the times that you spend with him, you know. So you, you know what it's like with your father and that certain smell and, you know, all that you try to live with forever. And uh, it was a really, it was a hollow feeling when he did pass away and it's hard to explain. It took a good year, I reckon, for me to stop thinking about him every day. In retrospect, should you have taken the year off? Would, would oh. you have been better away from footy or did oh. you find that footy actually helped get you through it? Initially, Beast, I'll be honest with you, I didn't ever want to play football. You know, it was really hard for me. I just wanted to spend time with myself and family. and So it was hard to accept. And, uh, you know, my football, because I didn't train hard and I was going out drinking and, you know, drinking 13 hours straight and not looking after myself. The, the period came up, you know, caught up with me where I really struggled with form. But luckily, Parko had the faith in me to keep playing me and they just played me a centre-half back after that. And all my role was not to be a match winner anymore, but was to just to beat my man and not even about possessions, which was, 
a different thing for me because I had to usually go there and take the marks and do the spectacular things in this one. And then it was just about doing your job and it taught me a lot about the game of football too. Yeah, just uh, changing the mood for a moment. Uh, you know, there's a couple of games I really want to put to you. Uh, one's the famous game out here against West Coast um, where you hauled in. George Valamos said you hauled in 26 <laughs> marks downstairs before. How many was it? Yeah. <laughs> I think bottom of 18. It was 18 marks that I took, yeah. But George is a terrific fellow. He's such a good board member. Uh, it was 18 marks that day, beast on the wing against uh, West Coast. So started the game with six marks in the first quarter and, uh, you know, I never really looked back after that, so... But how does that happen? Is it just one of those days where you say the book, you know, the ball follows you? Yeah, you get those days, I think, beach where you're just in that zone, and that zone you don't even think about anything. But footy is such a lovely game, and you don't even have to try hard, and the ball's around. So every time it was around there, I seemed to be in the right position, and you know, took that mark in the last seconds of the game or whatever to sort of help them save the game. We only won by one point. It was. And that was probably the first time the crowd really all started to chant "Kuda, Kuda" at the end. And uh, you know, I couldn't believe it. I think they're yelling out for me or, or what here. So yeah, that that was one. And the the uh, the supporters after that, I mean, I couldn't even walk out of the ground that that day. I had everyone come up to me and just said it was the most incredible game that they'd have ever witnessed. A lot said it was the best game they've ever seen any individual play. So yeah, it was a, a, it was an outstanding day. You know, on the wing too. So. Yeah, who knows, but Parker always said just leave Kuda out there one-on-one and just, you know, just kick the ball, you know, kick the ball towards him. So they gave me the room and, you know, I had the area to just move around and do as I pleased, I guess. And then, of course, there was your hand in one of the all-time great wins in Carlton history, the 1999 preliminary final. Um, You know, for anyone that was there, that last quarter was incredible, Mm. the way it panned out. And and you were thrown forward in Uh, that one? uh, Midfield. You were thrown yeah. in the midfield. I just been given the rein, and I think that's the way I played my best footy, Tony. Was when I just went out and just played footy. Doesn't matter whether it was defence or whatever. If I had the free rein to just move, I'd just go out there and just do what I I knew I could do, and that was what was called. So I started the first three quarters in the in defence in the back line. It was a close game, three quarter time. Essendon, did, you know, got ahead of us, and then. I think two or three minutes into the last quarter, I don't know how they, they called it. I don't know if it was Parker or Wayne Britton. I don't know. Said Kuda in the midfield. And it was what I've been waiting for all day. I couldn't believe it because at three quarters time, I was thinking, I never had the courage to go up to him and say, put me in the midfield. But it was I was thinking, please put me in the midfield because I felt like I was on that day. And I got that call. And that was it. And, of course, it was an incredible last quarter, the way that, you know, the game turned. And, and Carlton really, really, you know, found something deep when it mattered most you know they, they were uh, they went in as rank underdogs got up and an upset the day that Brax asked yeah. Jeff Kennett it was a day of upsets wasn't yeah, it yeah it was and you know the whole entire team so it wasn't just me but the entire team played so well that day we you know we uh, got out of the blocks very quickly and sort of shocked Essendon so that little bit of a start that we had helped us so at half time we had a really good lead then they came back and played the way they really probably should have played in the third quarter the entire game and then in the last quarter, we all, you know, just put in an, an amazing effort to get ourselves over the line. And some of those little little things that a lot of the players did were able to get us over the line. You know, Fraser Brown's tackle at the end, you know, those little things that made a major difference for us. But that will go down as one of my one of my all-time favourite games. But when you talk about the occasion of a prelim final, you know, apart from the grand final, I've got to say that's probably the second, you know, fav- most favourite game that I've ever played in. Now, you um, played in that period from 99 to 2000, 
I think you'd agree, the best football of your career. I mean, there were games where you were you seemed to be totally unstoppable, and it was that magnificent period of time where you were absolutely at your your peak. Mm. Um, do you agree that that was the the window for you? And that, I mean, that was the time I think we also re-signed, fairly lengthy yep. contract. Yeah, it, it, it was it was the peak for you, wasn't it? Yeah, ninety nine and two thousand one were my three greatest years. After the uh, you know after losing my father in ninety eight and losing form, I then had to turn it around. I never trained harder in my life than what I did in that period, and the game was a lot easier for me because I did that. So as hard as I thought I trained previously, I got I took took my training to another level in these three years and understood how hard you had to train as an AFL footballer, and I reaped the rewards because of it. So yeah, I had a really consistent three years of football. And, you know, even 99, I didn't get the accolades of year 2000, but I played a lot of that season centre-half back, Tony, and then, you know, running into the midfield later on. And, you know, I, I missed the last five games, but it was right up there as one of my best years too. I really consolidated, you know, centre-half back position. So that was, yeah, the three years of uh, my best football, yeah. And then, of course, we, we fast-forward to 2001, that final against Richmond where Matthew Knights, I think, fell across mm. your, your knee, put you out of the game, and it was really a, you know, a, a terrible moment for you and for the club. Yeah, 2001 was one of those years, too. I, I almost equated to the same as year 2000, maybe not as many contested marks and not as, quite as consistent, but when I got going towards the end of that, Later that year in 2001, I strung together, I think, three BOGs just before the finals. And then come Adelaide week one, I had 36 possessions or whatever it was. Took quite a few marks that day and, you know, dominated. And then in that second week of Richmond, just starting to find a bit of form, had a couple of goals. And then, unfortunately, I went to kick the ball off the ground. So it was my own fault. And then Matty Knights came across my leg. And then I think Adrian Hickman, without knowing a very courageous player, one of the most courageous players I played with, uh, came, you know, and pushed Knight, um, Matthew Knights that little bit more, and that was enough to just, yeah, get the knee and uh, very excruciating pain, beast. And, and for people who don't understand, you, you've obviously experienced the highs and lows, but how low do the lows get? You know, when you're out injured, how, how bad is it to be, you know, uh, around? Are you are you're sort of moping that you can't train? And how do you actually feel and how do you deal with it? I was miserable, but I didn't try to show it to people. I always came to the club with a smile on my face and encouraged everyone, I think, to uh, you know just keep going. Because there was some players, you know, in their times when they're down, they wanted to make make it known to everyone that they were, and I didn't want to be that sort of person. I don't think I am, but so maybe I hid a little bit of that sort of pain uh, and emotion. But you know what? I just just kept going, like anyone else would, and believe that I could come back and start playing good football again. It was three years of hard, you know, year 2000. And I injured my knee and then 01 and then I came back in 02 and lasted the three games and I injured it again. And, you know, it was pretty tough, but I just kept going. And do you think with the demands of the game increasing that we're going to see players actually spelled for longer periods of time? Is it, is it a good thing that players sometimes need to get away from it completely to, to replenish? Yeah, well, I think it is. Depending on how they are, but sometimes if you struggle, sometimes you need that little bit of time away and a bit of a refreshing. There was nothing better when Wayne Britton was coaching. He'd say, Kuda, just train for 20 minutes tonight and then you can have the rest of the night off, but I want you to train hard. So you train as hard as you can for 20 minutes, you come off feeling incredibly well, and then you go home and rest. So that little bit of freshness at home and clear the mind to do your own thing as well certainly helps a player. Now, uh, I think I've got this right that uh, you were coached by four men. It was David Parkin, Wayne Britton, Dennis Pagan, Brett Ratton. Mm. Can you talk a little bit 
about each of those four men? Yeah, David Parkin probably didn't see eye to eye with him early on, and um, you know because I thought I was being a bit harshly done by, and you know, I, I believed I should have been playing more games than what I did, and it wasn't the case. But I had a lot of respect for Parkin. And when we became good friends, I have. I see him as one of my very good friends now because although I don't see him too often, Beast, I really admire him and I thank him and he's an, a wonderful person and he did you know, so much for my career too. When we seen eye to eye eventually, we became really good friends. And Wayne Britton was one guy who taught me so much about the game. He was one, you know, from local footy, for the knowledge he had, it was almost like he could read what was going on within my brain and imagine like he was me and said, this is how I want you to play and almost had the game plan based around what I could do too. So, you know, Wayne Britton I always regard as my favourite coach and uh, Dennis Pagan, look, incredible coaching career, even under-19s and reserves and seniors. Just unfortunately, I think the time... You know, went beyond him, and maybe he, you know, he couldn't keep up with it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Look, he was still at the end. He gave everything, Dennis. There's no doubt about it. Did we see eye to eye when it came to game plans? No. You know, did I see eye to eye him as a person? Yeah. And I, you know, I've seen him a couple of times since, and you know, obviously he's taken it a bit harshly. I had, you know, a few words that I, you know, I said about him. But just that was the truth of the way that I felt about the club and where it was going. Unfortunately, because I love the club. It's beyond me and anyone by far. And that's all I spoke on, on the heart of what I thought of the club. And then Brett Ratton, well, I only lasted half a game, I think, with him. My time was up with, with Rats. You knew that the body had given out by then? You know, you'd given everything you could possibly give? Yeah, I, I knew too when the coach, the new coach came up and said, mate, we're just going to start you on the bench and then we're going to put you in the forward pocket. And I thought, forward pocket? For five or ten minutes a quarter, it's probably not ideal for me. So basically, the sign was there. But yeah, look, my body was gone anyway, beast. It was time for me to surrender and you know give it up. As much as I would have loved to have gotten to that 300 games, I was way, way, way off. It was like a marathon, like a marathon towards the end of your career when the game's a lot tougher and harder. So it was time for me to step down. And uh, yeah, you've obviously incurred some fairly serious injuries over the journey. How? Are you physically these days? Are there ramifications from those knee injuries you've had, all those other injuries you've incurred? How how are you now? I'm fantastic now, Tony. I feel great. I'm you know still training and doing what I used to do. And my major concern when I retired was my arthritic shoulder, and that with the you know the products you know the products that I use, but that that seems to have dissipated too. So. I'm fine, and I feel great at the age of 40. I feel like, you know, you can run around. Obviously, I can't, but, yeah, I'm still feeling like I can still do the things I do and still get myself in reasonable shape. And you still follow the Carlton Football Club with a passion? You know, you're not far away. You're in the area. Mm. You, you you look on with interest. Do you go to the games? I don't really go to many games, please, unfortunately, because, you know, my son doesn't like footy and my daughter hates footy and my wife doesn't like footy. So <laughs> I've got a bit of a battle at home. I mean, I've... I've got little Lucas now, he's two and a half, so he's got to be a football follower. Maybe with him I can start to get into the games. We want. No, look, I don't follow it as closely as I can. I love the club dearly. I have blue blood running through my veins, and I'm forever grateful for what the opportunity that this club provided me, but I don't follow it that closely anymore. With the new coach and the change here and uh, the team is up and about at the moment, do you think that maybe when the, the game's proper begin that you'll start to take more than a cursory glance at, at what's happening here? I always, Beast, look, whenever I have time and I'm at home, I don't go out of my way to watch it, but when I'm at home, 
I always, if Carlton's playing, I have an interest. So I'll sit there and watch it. But I'm, if I've got something on or whatever, it's not something I try to, you know, avoid to just sit there and watch the game. But for sure, I'm, I wish as a supporter now that they can go all the way this year and win it again because it's been a long time and we're all waiting. So it would be a thrill for the club. And the young kids will then understand the power of this football club. And when they start winning premierships again, all the supporters and everything, there's no better club than the Colton Football Club, and they haven't experienced that, in my opinion, this club at its peak. So if we can get back to the old way, the way that Colton was before, when I first entered, you know, back in my early days, then mate, they've got some really, really exciting times ahead. They don't know what it is, but you've seen it, Beast, this club. There's nothing better. And in closing, uh, Keita, there's a question I put to every former player that um, pops in for the interview. What does Carlton actually mean to you? Uh, well, as I said, Carlton, I love the football club. I was honoured and blessed to have been here from 14 when I walked in and left at 34. It was my entire life. And I'm forever grateful and I'm forever indebted to the club. I love this club dearly and uh, I always will. So, you know, I'll pass that on generations of my family and make it be known what this club uh, did for me and uh, where I hold it in my life, you know. Well said, Cooter. Magnificent to hear your thoughts today. Um, thanks for coming in and sharing them with the listeners. Um, we hope to see you around again. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Occasionally, all, yeah. All the, all the best, mate, and thanks again. Thanks very much, Tony. That's all from today's podcast. Thank you very much to Luca Ganano for producing, and we look forward to seeing you shortly with the next interview.